Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 8, from verse 19 through chapter 9 to verse 7. When I finish, I will end with the phrase, this is the word of the Lord, and you will all reply, thanks be unto God. Verse 19, chapter 8. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Verse 1, chapter 7, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boots used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I knew there was something missing. I forgot my Bible. All right. I don't have to say good morning. I've said good morning already. So, um, thank you all for being here. Um, I want to quickly get into this, but let me get the passage written out. Now, we're in this series of Advent. I don't know if some of us know what Advent is. It may have been something that we heard in the older churches and just think, 
my God, we are, we are just becoming like one of those churches that there's no life in and we just do all these silly traditional things. Now, again, there's nothing wrong in being traditional. It's just that when tradition has no life in it or you don't understand what it, uh, it means, then obviously it, mean, it means nothing to you. But Advent, the word Advent simply means um, the arrival of a notable person or a thing. Now, in the Christian tradition, and this, has, this is from the Latin word Adventus, which is derived from the Greek word parousia. How many of us have heard the word parousia before, right? In the coming of the Lord. So in Christian circles, it's come to represent the season leading on to Christmas. So Christmas is still, we're one week away from Christmas. So in this, our pre-launch period, before we launch, and our inaugural services will be January 8th. So our inaugural service will be January 8th. So we have this service next, next week and, the, and, and January 1st. So in this period before we start, we are actually looking in this Advent series. We started last week in the beginning of Advent in Genesis. Today we're looking more in the anticipation of Advent in the book of Isaiah. Now Christmas is probably one of the most celebrated festivals globally. This is partly due to Christianity's spread, right? It's spread around the world, but also partly due to fixing of the date of Christmas around where many traditions and other religions already had their end-of-year festivals. You know, Yorubas will say Odun, right? So it coincided with most traditions, most religions like to have an end-of-the-year festival. So Christmas has come to be accepted because of some of those things, the spread of Christianity and also its ability to get its way in, um, uh, um, in other traditions as well. Now, as a result of this Christmas, the season of Christmas and Advent is usually a feel-good one. You know, it's the season to be... It is the season to be... We don't have a lot of happy people in this place. So. <laughs> now, I don't want to be like the Grinch that stole Christmas. Huh? Or I don't want to get into how... I'm not going to get into how Christmas... No, you know, Christmas is truly a pagan holiday. Or how... Santa is an anagram for Satan. If you have the time for that kind of nonsense, be my guest. But if Christmas is really linked to the Bible, I think it's fair to say that we have become way too sentimental about Christmas. In fact, the pastor of one church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, Tim Keller, says Christmas is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. I'll say that again. Christmas is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It's because Advent has always been set within a context of a very dark time. Think about even the story we read last week, the Adam and Eve, when the promise of the one that was coming, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, it came in the context of when God was cursing them after they rebelled against God. If you think about some of the things Kemi just read to us, you quickly know that this is a very, very dark context. And many of us, even in this Advent series, or people that we know, are experiencing a very, very dark time. So Christmas is important because people are in darkness. So this week, as we consider the anticipation of Advent, we want to think of this message under the title of A Light Has Dawned. A Light Has Dawned. And we'll consider this in three points one, the darkness, two, the light, three, the child. One, the darkness, two, the light, and three, the child. So let's go into the first point. The darkness. 
2016 is coming to an end. And in general, let's just think of our country, it hasn't been a very good time. It just hasn't. The mood in the country is probably dark, and it's for many reasons. Think about it. There's more economic hardship. We've been, we're in a recession. Kidnapping is on the rise. There's increased social disharmony. Healthcare continues to fail. Our education systems are nosediving. Some of these wars are continuing um, unended. The IDP, IDP camps are filled up, bursting to the seams, and within the camps themselves, atrocities are going on. This is not the way to end the year with a bang. And if we even take it more and zoom in on some of our lives, think about the context of work. Because of all this uncertainty, if you are in a job that is probably secure, you are stressed out. If you're not stressed out, you're probably thinking, as many, as many staff is being, uh, being laid, out, laid off, you're probably thinking, what's going to happen to me? Or some of us have actually lost our jobs. Or if you're operating a business, now is the time you've just been seeing month after month after month things going down. And this year, some of us have lost some of the loved ones, loved ones uh, to us. This year, some of us have been diagnosed with illnesses that we never actually anticipated when we were thinking of the future of our lives. Or someone you know has been diagnosed with those kinds of, 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 of sicknesses. This year, coming into this year, in 2015, you probably thought, I have a bit more direction on my life. And all of a sudden now, everything is thrown into a bit of chaos because you're ending the year and thinking, I don't even know what 2017 is going to be like. We are distressed and hungry on the one hand, as you see in verse 21, and we see darkness and fearful gloom, gloom, as we see in verse 22. So you see, this thing that some of us may be experiencing or people that we know are experiencing is the same context we find the God's covenant people in the land of Judah were experiencing. They were all too familiar with this. If you notice in verse 4 of chapter 9, it says that they were under the rod of their oppressor. The oppressor were the Assyrians. I'll get into a little bit of, about that. But because they were under the rule of the Assyrians, there was, economic, um, uh, uh, there was no economic prosperity. There was social disharmony. It was a time of national malaise. And what's worse about this is you had different degrees, as some of us will know. There was distress. But there was also darkness. The distress moves to darkness. The darkness moves to gloom. In some other translations, that is deep darkness. We've been talking about deep community in our gospel communities. Well, this is deep darkness. And the final one, which is one we never want to think about, is utter darkness. And we know that sometimes we have come through sometimes, um, things that make us distressed. But in, when you are distressed... You still can come to church. You still can put a smiley face. You're still able to do the things you need to do at work. You would rather that you, won't, you shouldn't be here, but you say, I'm, I'm around 60%. I'm 60% happy. When you start getting into darkness, you can't think very straight. You really don't see people where they are. You just, you're so consumed with what is going on. And when you get to the place of gloom, it's as though you feel physically something is oppressing you. Like I said, utter darkness is one that no one yet has experienced. Now, in these kinds of times, we often need someone 
to interpret our condition and also to give us hope. In verse 19, this is exactly what the people did. Someone tells you to consult mediums and spirits. Some of them had started consulting mediums and spirits. Now, it's very, very surprising on the one hand, when I think of how many Lagosians, because now, you know, we're in the 21st century, we're all modern, sophisticated, we don't believe in all those kind of juju nonsense and all that. It is astonishing how many Western-educated Lagosians are actually running after one prophet or the other, or some, one Babalawa or the other. I'm telling you this because if anyone asked me, told me about it, I would have said no, until I started knowing more and more people that have been involved in this thing. This is not something... Grounded in antiquity, it's a reality today. Why? Because I don't want you to become very judgmental. Suffering and desperation causes the wisest of men to do the most stupid things. And so, we would go to African traditional religion, probably anything that's going to bring me out of this suffering, or we will go into with spiritists that have Christian garbs, there's no shortage of miracle crusade because there's no shortage of sufferers. Any miracle crusade that you see, what is it promising you? Breakthrough, deliverance, financial prosperity, um, defeat of barrenness, you'll get married. All the different things. Now, you can look down on people there because some of those things you actually already have or you think that you're smart enough. But that doesn't mean that those things don't mean something to those people. And for them, they are in a place of darkness. So they seek answers. Two other examples of places we seek answers from. If you're not one of those guys, you don't believe in all that kind of stuff, what do you do? The government. I voted for them. We voted for change. And when we're not seeing any kind of change, some will say we are seeing change, change for the worse. But when you're not seeing the kind of change that you voted for, then we turn back to them. Do your job. Make things better. Build the roads. Stop my wife from shouting on me. Yeah, some people think the government actually can get involved in their marriages. And if we're not looking to the government or we're not looking to spiritists, depending on the kind of book that you read, then we look to ourselves. So someone tells you, tell yourself, you are the change that we seek. We are global overcomers. See, there is no shortage of positivity language because there is no shortage of sufferance. Again, I don't say that to mock. The thing is that people are looking for answers. Where are you looking for your own answer before you look down at someone else? In a time of gloom, in a time of darkness, in a time of distress, we are always looking for people to give us a solution. We want them to interpret why we are going through what we are going. If we think they have the right answer, then we say, Give us the answer. If they say it's from your village, if they say it's your mother-in-law, if they say most likely how you're inclined will determine whether or not you believe the answer. What we don't normally do, and what these people did not do, was to consult the true and living God in the way he's disclosed himself. I'll say that again. What we don't do often, like these people didn't do, is to consult the true and living God in the way that he has disclosed himself. Why I say that is because Quite often, some people are driven to consult God, but they are driven to consult God through one man of God, through one prophet, who tells you something to do that has nothing to do with how God has disclosed himself. Where has God disclosed himself? In his word. Verse 20, consult God's instruction. 
In 19, he said, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? The next verse, it says, consult God's instruction. That is, God says, consult me, but to consult me is to consult my word. One of the most honest conversations I've had this year was someone I was counseling, and I said to the person, I was going through a, a Tory time, and I said, part of what you need to do, apart from the things that we had said, I said, part of the things I've just told you is going to help relieve this situation. But if you want to sustain a flourishing situation, I said, don't miss your devotion every morning for 15 minutes. Read your Bible for 15 minutes every morning, and with your wife 15 minutes at the end. You know what he told me? One of the most frank, honest conversations, he said, Femi, yeah, it's true, but the moment I start reading the Bible, I don't even know where to start. I don't even understand. That's a better place to be. Because in that place, you are saying, I need help from where I should be getting help. But if you assume and say, well, yeah, we should, and you lie to yourself that I kind of do here and there, my friend, you'll be in trouble. You'll be looking for an easy way out, and any kind of charlatan can actually get to tell you the things that God hasn't said. So unfortunately, we don't want to look to the word of God. And let me tell you one, one of the reasons why we don't. Because we don't want to hear what the word of God says about us. We don't want to hear what the word of God says about us. You see, Judah were in trouble, this kingdom were in trouble because of their unbelief in God. Syria further to the north, and Ephraim, the land, the other ten tribe Israelites, were ganging up to come against them. And their king, Ahaz, was wondering, what are we going to do? Isaiah came, all this you can see in chapter 7, Isaiah came and said, don't worry, believe God, this thing will not have any sway. You will not be defeated. But he was panicked, and so eventually he went to ally himself with the Assyrians. In other words, he did not believe what God's word said, and he decided to do things on his own terms. He was scared of what God's word would tell him. And in many ways, that is the problem we have. We don't like to truly hear what God's word tells us, because let me tell you something that God's word tells us. The Bible tells us that darkness is outside because darkness is within. Now, I'm not saying that that means that every single problem that is outside, you can be directly linked to it. What I'm saying is that with all the problems that are outside in the world, you are not absorbed of any one of them. And so whilst you shout, God, we hate what's going on there, God say, well, have you looked at the mirror lately? That's uncomfortable to hear. That is deeply uncomfortable to hear. And this is not what the culture tells us. Over oh, about 100 years ago, the Times of London um, decided to do something. They, they threw out one big question and they invited readers to actually write in. And what was the question? The question was basically this. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? If someone asked you that, what would you say? I think it's Vladimir Putin. No, I think it's Donald Trump. No, I think it's Baba Goslo in, in Asso Rock. No, I think... What would you say is the problem with the world? And so various answers came in, lots of sophisticated, long pieces explaining how we not come together, how the world, we, you know, different tribalism, different things. And a guy called G.K. Chesterton wrote in. And G.K. Chesterton said, dear editor, to the question, to the question, what is wrong with the world? He said, dear editor, I am G.K. Chesterton. 
Now, he's not stupid. He's not saying that he probably was the one that caused war in a distant land that he did not know the name. But he's saying at the most fundamental level what the Bible also says. The problem with this world is a problem with man. Man suffers the problem, but man is at the root of the problem. But if we think of other ways, for instance, if we think in the moralistic way, which is basically the darkness is in others, but it's not in me, then we start to think, I can solve my problem myself, and I look down on people who actually have a problem that I don't think I have. Another way we can look at it is in a relativistic way. And that one says, there is no darkness in anyone at all, per se. The only problem we have is inefficiencies, negative energy, or a bad upbringing. And so we throw out social programs to try and solve these issues. The problem with these methods is we never, ever, ever blame ourselves. Someone, it's always someone else's fault. And worst of all, rather than seek God's help, we blame God for the situation. Verse 21b. Distressed and hungry, they will roam the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and then they will look upward. They didn't look upward before. It's after they couldn't find a solution. They look upward and curse their God and their king. Can I tell you, if you arrive at this point, you are at the worst point ever. This is the worst situation of all. In your heart, this is the reflection of that last part in verse 22. This is utter darkness. The full realization of this is what the Bible calls hell. When you can fully say with yourself that this God, though he exists, he has, is absolutely untrustworthy. I'd rather take my faith into my own hands. The Bible says that is the road to hell. So I told you not to be too so sentimental about Christmas. Except the antidote to all of this negative negativity it's not naive sentimentalism, but it's neither that we, Christmas doesn't say we should stay in a morbid pessimism. How do I know? One word, verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. My second point, the light. Nevertheless. Can we say that together? Nevertheless, you see, you have this picture, this dark picture, which the Bible says, look, there's no more realistic religion than Christianity. Christianity says there is darkness. You say there's darkness in the world. If Christianity was true, why is there darkness in the world? Have you read the Bible lately? There is darkness all over, but it says, nevertheless. You see, in the first point, we said we don't want to hear what God's word says because we don't like to hear what God's word tells, says about us. But if we're patient enough, we will see that God's word also tells us something outstandingly better than we can ever imagine. In verse 9, when we see, 9 verse 1, we see, uh, verse 2, it says, where there was darkness, all of a sudden there is now light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. So he moves from a place of darkness and then says, 
Here is the future that you are trying to imagine. Here is the thing that your heart longs for, but you cannot even imagine it properly. You cannot actually devise a better picture. What does it do in verse 3 to 5? It gives us a bit of the picture. It tells us about a kingdom, because Judah was a kingdom in darkness, and it tells us about a life that this light produces. In verse 4, it tells us about an oppressed kingdom that becomes a liberated one because of the light. In verse 5, it tells us about a war-torn kingdom that becomes a peaceful one because of the light. In verse 3b, it tells us of a depleted kingdom that becomes a fruitful one. Why? Because of the light. And in verse 3a, it tells us of a distressed kingdom that becomes a joyful one because of the light. I has not seen, neither has it entered into the heart of man, what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Can I suggest to you that you have not started yet if you try to imagine what the best life for you is. You cannot imagine what God has prepared. This is what the light says. God cares so much about the darkness and suffering in this world. He cares so much that he's promised the light and therefore has done something about it. But before I quickly transition into the third point, I want you to observe two things. How, where does this light come from? Now notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In other words, why are the people, remember when we said the people are in distress, it's partly to do with their own fault. Now, if you are getting justice, I did this thing and therefore I'm getting the end of what I have done, that makes perfect sense. But if you are not getting justice, then it must be that you don't deserve this and it is by grace. That's what the Christian, Christianity teaches grace is. Because notice... In verse 2b, it does not say, of let me read verse 2, this is not what verse 2 says. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has emerged. Does it say that? It doesn't say that the light emerges out of, the, uh, of darkness. In other words, you are not the change that we seek. Sorry. It says that there is darkness here and a light has what? Dawned on it. It's a light that has come outside of the darkness to shine upon that darkness. Arise and shine for your light is come for the glory of God has what? Risen upon you. The cure does not come from the same people who carry the disease. We need an alien light. And that is why at the end of this reading in verse 7, it says the zeal of Yahweh or the zeal of the Lord Almighty is the one that accomplishes it. Quite often you meet people who say, ah, you tell them to, give, uh, to do a task, they say, I will try my best, I'll do it. At the end of the day, they fail you. Why? Because zeal is not enough. Human zeal is never just enough. Human effort is never just enough. In, when you think of the extraordinary mess that we, we, ha- we have as a human race, Believe me, our effort to see a better future is not enough. This isn't to say that we shouldn't work for better things. I will get into that. But it isn't enough. God, by his grace, has to do it. Grace is, or Christian grace, is God's effectual saving act coming to an undeserving people. So since no one, no man, no human being can do it, 
And since God does not live among us, is this light some kind of new age kind of impersonal light? You know, like Star Wars, the force. The force be? Uh-huh. So is this kind of the light be with you? As, as I'm preaching, I'm just blazing forth light. Or does the Bible say something more personal about the light? In other words, we see the future, we know the past, but how do we get to the future? And now we're getting to the heart of Christmas. And we are told that by, again, another word. Verse 4. And the word there is for. For. So he paints this picture for us. Uh, sorry, verse 6. It says for. He paints this picture for us of a liberated, a joyful, a fruitful kingdom. And he tells us exactly how this is going to be achieved. He says for. I'm on my third point now. The word for there is the hinge that shows us all, how all these great things will happen. The extraordinary mess of Judah's situation, but also Judah as a reflection of the world's problem, there is a for there. And what comes after that for? For what? A child is born. What? How unclimactic. What a whimper. A damp squid. With all the extraordinary mess that we have in this world, you're telling me what? A child is born. Now, I know Valeria is bringing some kind of light into Tedo and Susha's life and all that. But believe me, the things that Tedo and Susha want to do for next year, they're not going to get by just smiling at, Susha, at, at Valeria. A child is born? How could the solution of the world's problem come from a child? Remember, a child is the most ordinary of human beings. This solution is so, when you think about the extraordinary mess we're in, this solution is so extraordinarily ordinary that it's either totally bonkers or it must be God. Because if you and I were called, like Samuel, to describe what kind of savior or solution to the darkness that we see, if we, are described, if we are given the task of describing it, surely we'll come up with something more sophisticated than this. Maybe we'll come up with an army of 200 million people to first dispel all the dark forces in the world. Then we'll gather maybe an army of like 50,000 technocrats to solve all the inefficiencies in the world. Then we'll gather an army of like 20,000 Nelson Mandela's that will bring freedom to all of the world. Maybe we'll do something like that. A child? It is either totally crazy or it must be God. Now it's a child. But if you look closer, this is no ordinary child. In verse 6, one of the of one of the four names that is described about this child, he is called the mighty God. Now, there's an extreme, a, a spectacular paradox there. Just think about it. The mighty God. A child, we know, is weak. A child is not mighty. And a child is human. A child is not God. Now, listen to me. This is the heart of Christmas. Because Christmas teaches us that God's cure to humanity's problem 
is God becoming human. I'll say that again. Christmas teaches us that God's cure to humanity's problem is God becoming human. Can we say that together? Christmas teaches us that God's cure to humanity's problem is God becoming human. You see in verse 1 where it says that there will be no more gloom to those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of sea beyond the Jordan. This particular prophecy is picked up centuries later. There was a man who went to live in a place called Capernaum. And he was about to start his ministry. Listen to what Matthew 4 says. Now, when he heard that John, this man, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to, into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went to live and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has, da- has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom that was described to us here, all of a sudden, in the coming of the person of Jesus, the God who is a human being, and the preaching of that kingdom, all of a sudden, everyone that is darkness has said the light is dawning. You see, what God becoming a human being signifies, at one of the most fundamental levels, is that God identifies with us. He has come to identify with us. Because he's the creator, but the creator has now become part of the creation. He cares so much for us that he identifies with us. Now, you would say to me, well, okay, identifying with us as humans is one thing, as astonishing as that is. There's no other miracle I can tell you. There's nothing more astonishing in this world that you can ever imagine than God becoming human. The creator becoming the creature. Eternity bound by time. So it's one thing that he identifies with us as humans, but from what I know about Jesus Christ, he was powerful. He performed miracles. I don't think he ever got sick in his life. He's not had to suffer the kind of darkness that I am suffering. To which I'll say you are right, but you're also deadly wrong. You're right in that, yes, Jesus Christ was extremely powerful. You're wrong to say that he hasn't suffered the kind of darkness that you are going through. How do I know this? Because the story of Christmas, of Christianity, begins at Christmas and culminates, not ends, but culminates at Easter. Christmas lays down the paradigm of God's identification with his people. But this light, this person of Jesus Christ, this light was, as it were, snuffed out by the darkness. In fact... It wasn't just snuffed out by the darkness. It was snuffed out by utter darkness on the cross. Remember we said that utter darkness, the full realization of utter darkness is what the Bible calls hell. Where you would have absolutely no kind of friendly relationship with God. 
because of your rebellion against God, and because you will say, I would have any other solution but that this God, even though that would mean suffering, that's what the Bible calls hell. On the cross, Jesus Christ identified with us so much, he who had the light in himself, that he tasted and was thrust into utter darkness so that we will not be there. In other words, Christmas to Easter is basically the fact that eternity entered the temporal so that those who are temporal people could enter into eternity. Or that light came into darkness so that those who are in darkness could come into light. How do I know that the cross achieved this, you would say? Yes, I know historically that Jesus died. But how do I know that it has achieved this thing? Especially when I look around now and I'm saying, well, that is going to come in the future. But how do we know? How can we be certain? Give me something that I can take to the bank. Well, you see, there was something that's funny here. If you look in verse 20, verse 19, chapter 8, verse 19b, he says, why consult the dead? When these people were you know, looking for spiritists and people that people are mutter, he says, why console the dead on behalf of the living? Why console the dead on behalf of the living? When the light was snuffed out on Calvary, on the third day, some women went to the tomb where Jesus was buried to embalm him. And there were angels there. And the angels asked a very crucial question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In our darkness, we seek the dead among the living. True light says, why are you seeking Jesus, who, yes, died, but now is risen? Because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, one, he vindicated God's sacrifice, that, yes, I have purchased eternal salvation for those who believe in me. But also, he shows us that that world, this kingdom, where all these things promised and much more will be given to us, says this kingdom has already started. How do I know? I have been the first fruit of that. I have come into this resurrected day. And so this is what Christmas represents for us. There is darkness all around us, but have you considered the darkness within us? And I want to start thinking about this as I close this message. Have you considered the darkness in you that says, I want to be my own savior? I will consult anyone else but God. Have you consulted the darkness in you that says, I consult God when it comes to all my material things, all the dreams that I have, but at the deepest and most fundamental level of my sin? Because essentially being our own savior is what the Bible calls sin. I wouldn't have what God wants to say to me. I want to create my own future. I want to... Rewrite Isaiah chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 9, verse, uh, Isaiah 9, 3 to 5. I want to put this whole future in prosperity and health and all those things now. Have we considered the darkness that motivates such kind of thinking? Christmas tells us that there is a light that is dawning. And what if you're a believer? That doesn't make you exempt. Because though we may be saved by Christ, quite often we continue in ways that we want to save ourselves. Paul told the Galatians, you started in the spirit, now you want to complete yourself in the flesh? 
To say we truly believe the gospel is not just that the gospel saves us, it's that the gospel ought to shape us. In our gospel communities, we've been considering so many of the different things that we never knew were inside of us, the different motivations. Well, Christmas says, allow that light to continue to shine brighter and brighter. So on the occasion where at City Church, we dedicated our own first baby, can we remember God's greatest child gave to us? This is what this whole Advent series is all about. So I want us to bow our heads now and just reflect. Reflect on sometimes our materialistic, consumeristic way of thinking about Christmas. It's the end of the year. It's time to give rice. It's time to give bonus. It's time to create this festival. It's time to be among families. None of those things are wrong. But when those things become central in our lives, then we've created a whole new narrative for ourselves. Let's think about this great light. And what if you are here today and you are in a place of deep darkness, of gloom, or distress, or darkness? Can you remember that there was a light that came into this world that shone but experienced utter darkness for you? Can you remember that? Can you hold on to him? Can you trust him in the place of suffering knowing that he has already suffered and understand what it means to, be felt, to, to feel your infirmities? And if you are not really in any of those situations, can you think about the ways you behave in community? Can you think about the ways you behave with those that are outside? How much does the light of this good news shape your life? Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it brings clarity, it brings understanding. We thank you, O Lord, for Christmas. The time when God became a human, because that was the only solution to our problems. And we thank you for the light of the one who says, I am the light of the world. I ask, Lord Almighty, that for those who have not come to that light, let them come. Yes, you would expose the sin in their hearts, but you give them a future that no one can ever dare imagine. And for those of us who have already come to the light, help that light to shape our ways of thinking. Help that light to help us to anticipate the time when the light will be all over the earth as the waters cover the sea. And shape the inner recesses of the ways we live today so that we can be truly people of the light. This we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.